We're going to be in Acts 11 this morning and also 1 Peter 4. Acts 11 and 1 Peter 4. So if we want to get those two spots open, we can get going here. Acts 11 and 1 Peter 4. Continuing our study here through the book of Acts, we're going to finish up chapter 11 today, verses 19 through 30. And we're going to be taking a few other stops and some other places in the Bible. So, hey, let's do the smart thing. Let's pray. Give this over to the Lord and see what He has to say. As always, Lord, we pray that You would teach, we would listen through Your Holy Spirit. Um, Go before all things. And just thank You for the time to be here today. Thank You for the time to fellowship and worship and be blessed. And we just once again want to praise You and let Your Spirit guide and direct in all things. In Your name, amen. All right, key verse here this morning is actually going to be verse 26. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about verse 26 for a second, then we're going to go backwards and fill this all in. Look at Acts 11, verse 26. It says, When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, now the background of what's going on, we already know. Peter had an opportunity last week to present the gospel to the Gentiles. Here next week, we're going to get into the persecution of the church. So that's kind of the background. The gospel is going out. That's most important. The church is now starting to be persecuted more. But in the midst of this, there's this little verse, verse 26, and this is where they were first called Christians. Now, it's kind of fascinating to me that this time period here in the book of Acts, we're maybe eight, nine, ten years away from when Christ died on the cross. And it took that many years for this term Christians to come into play. Now, the term Christian, oh, it's used so much today. Are you a Christian? This is a Christian way we do things, Christian morals and values. But yet it took years for this term Christian to really develop in the early church. What does it mean to be a Christian? Christian literally means that you're just a follower of Christ. Now, that seems simple enough. But when you really stop and think about it, what it means to be a follower of Christ. Problem is, we have this term I like to use where people are Christians in name only. They claim to be a Christian. They say they're a Christian. But you don't see any Christian attributes really happening in their lives. I don't mean that judgmental, but they're not following Christ in their life and how they do things. So what does it mean to be a Christian? What we're going to do here this morning is we're going to kind of break this down. And there's really six points that come out of this lesson of this is an attribute of a Christian. Because if I'm truly a follower of Christ, what does that mean? Do you realize how big of a statement that is to say that you're a follower of Christ? When you say that I'm a Christian, a follower of Christ, you're saying that I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to get to heaven. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, I am the only way to get to heaven. So when I say that I am a Christian, I am by default saying that if you follow the Muslim faith, if you follow the Hindu faith, if you follow a Far Eastern faith, you're you're not going to heaven. See, now the problem is I run into people that are Christians, but they don't believe that. I have a hard time reconciling that in my mind. How can I say I'm a follower of Christ for Jesus himself said, I'm the only way? but yet believe other things. I also run into people that claim to be Christians that have what I call buffet Christianity. They like certain aspects of the Bible, so that's what they take. They like the idea of grace. They like the idea of mercy. They like the idea of an eternal home in heaven. But but I'm not a big fan of hell. So I'm not going to do the whole hell thing. You know, some of the moral guidelines that God has set up in the Bible, I'm not a big fan of those, but I'm a Christian. Well, wait a second. 
If you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, that means you're also a follower of the Bible because what did Jesus say? Jesus said, the whole of the book is written about me. Jesus said the whole book, Genesis to Revelation, is about me. So when I go study Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, etc., I'm really studying a shadow, a picture of who Jesus is. So it's so important to understand what does it mean to be a Christian. We throw that term out too loosely. When I first got saved, I used to just simply ask, do you believe in God? And everybody believes in God. And then I started realizing, okay, that question's not good enough. Then I started asking, are you a Christian? Well, the problem is the majority of the people are a Christian, or say are. My question now is, who is Jesus to you? Tell me who Jesus is to you. Because that really is what defines who we are. So, we are Christians. We follow Christ. What you see in this quick little lesson this morning are six attributes of what a Christian does. Let's jump right into it. Verse 19, Acts 11. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. What's the first attribute of being a Christian? Verse 19, you're going to be persecuted. That, that's, isn't that interesting? But they were scattered after the persecution. You're going to go through tough times as a believer. I had you go to um, 1 Peter 4, if you could turn there real quick. 1 Peter chapter 4. It amazes me sometimes as believers when we get shocked at the difficulties we face in this world. We're going to be persecuted. We're going to go through trials. We're going to go through tribulations. Just because we're a believer doesn't mean that we're not going to be the one that loses their job. We're not going to be the one whose car falls apart at the worst time ever. We're not going to be the one who doesn't get diagnosed with cancer. No, we're going to have the same trials and tribulations as the world does, but we have the foundation of Christ that gets us through it. Look at this, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Why is it that we think it's strange when difficult things happen in our life? I can't believe that happened to me. Really what I'm saying is, as a child of God, I should be exempt from all struggles and tribulations. I don't see that in the Bible. I don't see that in any way whatsoever. Peter is writing the early church here saying, why do you think it's strange that difficulties have come into your life? They are, it is inevitable that these difficulties are going to come into your life. An attribute of being a Christian is you will go through difficult times. Verse 13, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when he, His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceedingly joy. He says, but since you're a Christian, you rejoice in that suffering. Now, that's just where, this is where it gets strange. Why would I rejoice in suffering? Verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. See, as a believer, when I am persecuted, when I am reviled, when I am insulted for the name of Christ, I'm blessed. For, for a brief, tiny moment, I get to share what Jesus Christ went through. I'm blessed. And not only for that, I'm blessed because it fills up my little heavenly meter, if you will. One time I was talking to someone, and they weren't really happy. 
with me, with the church, with everything, and there was a lot of uh, rough words coming out of their mouth. And I just kept thinking as I'm talking to them, you're tearing me down, but I'm being built up for eternity. It's this fascinating system here. So when you're going through these difficult times, God says you're blessed. It grows you as a believer. It encourages you as a believer. Now, in the middle of it, it sure doesn't seem good. But we have to look past what we're going through now and look towards the eternity of what it is. It should not shock us or surprise us when we as believers go through difficult times. Verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody. In other people's matters. Basically saying, don't bring the trouble on you. Verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Accept the fact that as a believer, you will go through difficult times. I was just talking to someone recently that has been going through a very, very difficult last few years of life and reached a point of frustration, reached a point of just, this is tough. And then I remember they found this passage in Hebrews where it says, basically, if you're going through these difficult times, it shows that God's hand is on you as the hand of a loving father. And that they stopped and they realized By me going through these difficult times, this is something my loving Father is saying, I need you to go through, I want you to go through, and this serves a greater good down the road. And that really blessed them to realize this. Because if you were just sitting here on your own and you came in this morning and you're going through a very fiery trial right now and you don't see the eternal purpose of it, how difficult would that be? It would be depressing, it would be discouraging, it would knock you down. But when you stop and you say, okay, as a believer... I realize the Lord has allowed this into my life. There's a greater heavenly good coming through this. I may not see it at this moment, but I trust that. That's part of being a Christian. Because I'm willing to follow Christ, even though it's a difficult path right now. The early church was scattered. They're persecuted. Pretty soon, there's going to start being martyrdom. But yet, they still stayed faithful. First attribute of being a Christian is you will be persecuted. You will go through fiery trials. Don't be shocked. Don't think it's strange. What's the next attribute of being a Christian? Verse 20. They're preaching. They're preaching. This idea of being evangelical, getting the gospel message out. We have reached this point almost where we feel like it's the responsibility of the church, the people that have titles, to be the ones preaching the gospel. That's not what you see in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, it's the responsibility of the church. What has been our word here for the last couple months? This word is disciple. Disciples make more disciples. So as a disciple, I choose to follow Christ. And part of my path of following Christ is I choose to go encourage other people to follow Christ. Disciples make disciples. You see the early church here. Their focus was preaching the Lord Jesus. That's all they cared about. Where have we lost that in these 2,000 years? And I'm not trying to pick on you because I'd fall into the same thing. If I would stop and list what are my priorities in life? Right now, you know what I'm thinking about? My yard probably needs mowed. <laughs> now, if you would ask me, what are your priorities? I would give you my Christian answer. Oh, my, my, my priorities in life are to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with every ounce of my body. The priority in life is to pastor this church, to love my wife as Christ loved church, to see my boys grow up and serve the Lord. Those are my priorities. Okay, now what's your real priorities? That yard. <laughs> I got I to get that yard mowed. Isn't it interesting how we know what we're supposed to say, but yet our priorities become different? Seriously, I've looked out at my yard these last few days. i got to get that yard mode. That's my priority. The priority of the early church was preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We've lost that. And, and it's not that the priorities we have now are bad. But, you know, i got, I got to get some stuff done for work tomorrow. You know, i got this big project coming up. You know, exam weeks are coming up here for school. we got this coming up. None of those things are necessarily wrong. That's being a diligent worker, a diligent student. But when I wake up in the morning, is my priority, Lord, how can I serve and love you today? Because I firmly believe this. I run into people sometimes that say, well, I don't have an opportunity to preach the gospel. I firmly believe this. If you wake up in the morning and you stop and you say, Lord, I want to be used by you today. I want to minister for you today. I want to have an opportunity to show your love today to someone. God will bring that into your life. But most of the time when we get up in the morning, we're not thinking about the eternal. We're thinking about the practical right now in this world. Lord, help us to have that eternal mindset. I want to preach the Lord Jesus. Disciples make disciples. And I want to do that. So the church is growing. It's being blessed. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. Great number believed and turned to the Lord. What happens now? Verse 22, the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So this church is growing here in Antioch, so they send Barnabas. But Barnabas is a good guy. He's a real good guy. His name means son of rest. We're first introduced to Barnabas back in Acts 9. Paul gets saved. Guy comes into his life. Barnabas comes into Paul's life to encourage him. Antioch, new Christians. Hey, send Barnabas. Barnabas is that type of guy that if you're just around him for a few minutes, you just feel better about yourself. You ever know somebody like that? You're, you're having a bad day, and you just run into them, you start talking to them. It's nothing deep, it's nothing spiritual, but you just walk away from that conversation going, I like that guy. Encouragement, Barnabas. And look at his description, verse 24. Good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Wouldn't you like it if that's how people would describe you? But what do you think of James? Oh, he's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Well, what do you think of her? Well, she's a good woman, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. What a description. Now, we have this other term that we like to use a lot where people we talk about someone being full of it. <laughs> you, what are you full of? And I mean, I mean that sincerely. I, I made that point at the 830. They didn't laugh. I didn't know what to do when you guys joked about that. Because the Bible says you can also be full of wrath. You can be full of deceit. You choose what you want to be full of. Barnabas is full of Holy Spirit and of faith, but the Bible says, I can be full of wrath, I can be full of deceit, I can be full of bitterness. It's really your choice. When you get up in the morning, you are making a choice right away to say, what do I want to be full of today? I want to be full of the Holy Spirit, I want to be full of faith, I want to be a light and a witness for the Lord, or am I going to get up and be full of bitterness? Boy, I still feel the same way. I'm going to be full of anger, I can't believe that's what's going on. Boy, it really makes a difference in how you approach the day. I'm a morning person. I have no pride. I love the morning. I get up in the morning. Of my kids, of the five boys, only one of them is a morning person, Judah, number two. So I get up in the morning, and I'm ready to meet the day. I'm happy. I'm excited. Judah gets up, and we'll sit at the kitchen table doing breakfast. We'll look outside. We'll talk about the birds. We'll talk about life. And then slowly, one by one, these other heathens in my house wake up, (laughs) and they just pull the day down. I'm full of joy, and what does the Lord have today? And they are just full of whatever else. It's a choice. Okay, I, I'm willing to bet the majority of you have to do something this week you, you don't want to do. I mean, it's inevitable. How are you going to handle it? 
Are you going to go into it full of wrath and anger and I can't believe this? Or are you going to go and say, okay, Lord, hey, I've got a home in heaven. I'm eternal in Christ. See, this is the problem. We, we make it sound so simple, but isn't it really that simple? It really kind of is. Don't you think Barnabas had bad days? Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, a good man, an encouraging man. He didn't allow the circumstances of life to bring him down. And that's why he was constantly sent to these new believers. Because if you were a new believer, you would want Barnabas in your life. Encouraging and helpful. And and just what a blessing to be around. We need more Barnabases where their gift is just encouragement. Hey, so-and-so is going through a difficult time. Hey, I'll write them a note. I'll pray for them. I'll, I'll tell them I'm praying for you. Encouragement. That's the way the church is supposed to be. And look what happens here, verse 25. Then Barnabas departed for Tarshish to seek Saul. So Barnabas leaves to go seek Saul. Now we have to stop here for a couple of points. If you had never read the Bible, and this is a pretend you knew nothing about the Bible, except you had just now read through Acts 11. If you had just been reading the Bible, you would think the big wigs of the church are going to be Peter, maybe James, Probably Barnabas. Because Saul, I mean, yeah, Saul has a great testimony. I mean, he was the guy that had Stephen killed, and we see him in Acts 9 getting saved. But after Acts 9, Paul just disappears. So if you were reading the Bible for the first time, and you said, hey, then Barnabas departed for Tarshish to seek Saul, that'd be kind of interesting. Oh, I wonder what Saul's going to do. Now, we know how it ends. In a couple chapters, Saul becomes Paul and ends up writing about half the New Testament. But at this point, if you were just reading it, Saul's kind of a minor little character. God had big plans for this guy. So what did Barnabas do? He's seeking Saul. This is probably roughly eight years after Saul got saved. Now what did Saul do for those eight years? We know for the first three and a half years, he went to the desert, the wilderness, Arabia. Just him and the Lord. What has he been doing for the last few years? We really don't know. I don't think he was sitting there doing nothing. I think the Lord was using him and preparing him. So Barnabas seeks him out. A couple things on this. First off, I think sometimes as a church, and I mean the body of Christ, we have a tendency to do this. Somebody gets saved on Sunday, we expect them to be teaching on Monday. There is a growing period. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're saved on Sunday, I hope you're spreading the gospel five minutes later. But spiritual responsibility, that takes time to develop, to encourage, to disciple, to work. And sometimes we see too many young believers thrown in to responsible positions. You see here with Saul, took years. And look at this, Barnabas sought Saul, seeking Saul. This word for seek is only used two times in the Bible. Used once here, the other time is in Luke chapter 2. And if you remember the story of Luke chapter 2, that's where Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. And the Bible says they were seeking Christ. Now parents, have you ever lost your child for a few minutes? That's one of the worst feelings in the world. I mean, it's an awful feeling. I remember one time we lost Elias for a couple minutes. We were at one of these family fun days and they had the big bounce houses. And it was kind of that, okay, is he big enough to go on? Yeah, we think he is. So he would go on and as you can tell I'm not really that tall. I couldn't see over the walls of the bounce houses. So Elias would go up the big bounce house thing to slide down and then he disappeared. And you wait and you see the other kid come down, you see the other kid come down. You know, where's my kid? And all of a sudden, you have this frantic feeling. And you're running around trying to find, trying to look. It was only for a couple minutes, but it is an awful, awful feeling. That's the word used for Barnabas seeking Saul. 
Now, isn't that an interesting word? Because when we seek somebody out, hey, we call them, we text them. This is the spiritual burden of I need to make contact with Saul. I need to check in with him. Was it the Lord leading him? I sure think so. Was it God saying, Barnabas, it's time. Bring Saul into this. Put that effort into it. Now, we've lost that as a church. Once again, we've reached this point as a church where it's really not my responsibility to keep track of everybody. I mean, I just show up at 10 o'clock. I sit down. I worship. I say hi to the people near me. I try to sit in the same spot every week so that way I don't have to meet somebody new. And, you know, I just try to keep it simple. What would happen if we had the same burden for people? See, there's this balance thing. And we talk about this behind closed doors out here at church all the time. These two parables. There's the parable of the, of the 99, where the shepherd lost the one sheep, leaves the 99 behind, and goes, finds that one to bring him back. But there's also the parable in Luke 15 of the prodigal son, where the prodigal left, and no one chased after him. He'll come back on his own. So what happens is we have this really unique thing out here at church. I'm called to be the shepherd. I'm called to keep track of the sheep. So what happens is one of the sheep doesn't show up for a week. Okay, you know, life goes on. Sick. Okay, now it's been a couple weeks. Okay, you know, sometimes work's good. Now it's been a few weeks. Then it kind of keeps going. And then you get this check in your spirit. Now what do you do? Is this leave the 99 and go get the one? And you stop and you say, I need to seek this person out. I need to call him. I need to text him. I need to write him because I'm so burdened. Or is it the prodigal? I know they're struggling. And the best thing I could do is actually, isn't this sound crazy? Step back and let them figure this out the hard way. Boy, that's a tough balance. And Rich and I go back and forth on this all the time. I'm the leave the 99 and go search the one. I'm the stalking pastor. That's what I would be. Richard, you guys could disappear and you would never notice. I mean, you know, he's, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Everybody's personality is different. And I encourage you as a body to get involved with this. When's the last time you felt a spiritual burden to seek somebody out? You know, we talked about this a couple months ago. Our, our phrase here has been disciples. That's what the book of Acts is about. Disciples making disciples. Is this idea of growing other people in their walk and relationship with Christ. I encourage you. In fact, I, I, I really ask you, take that directory. Once a week, look through it. Pray through it. Is there somebody the Lord lays on your heart that you say, hey, I haven't seen them in a while. I need to contact them. That's what the body is supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be these different body parts connected together that we stop and say, in my heart, I feel for that person. I don't know what's going on, but obviously they're hurting, so I'm going to seek them out. I'm going to find out what's going on. I'm going to contact them, call them, love them. Or maybe it's just, hey, I'm going to step back and pray for them. But this is part of the responsibility of the body of Christ. It's the body watches out for the body. You see Barnabas seeking Saul. Now, we know what happens. Saul comes into play, and next thing you know here, in just a couple of short chapters... The rest of the book of Acts is all God following Paul and his different missionary journeys and what the Lord is doing with them. It's an amazing, amazing thing. So what happens now, verse 26, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was there for a whole year. They assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. We said there were six points on being a Christian. The first one is persecuted, difficult times. second one is preaching. The third one was being an encourager. The fourth one is seeking. The fifth one here, now you see in verse 26, they taught. There's a difference between teaching and preaching. Normally what we do on a Sunday morning is teaching. We are giving you tools, we're equipping you with biblical tools to go out and spread the gospel of Christ. So then you can go preach the gospel to other people. So that is the goal. Now, 
When you go to your co-workers, your friends, your family, probably most of what you do is preaching, proclaiming the gospel message, this idea of Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He's the only way to get to heaven, the reality of hell. You're preaching that message. Now, if you work with other believers, maybe you are doing some times of teaching, encouraging them and saying, hey, well, you know what? This is what I've learned and studied. What you see here in the church is as Christians, you're called to preach and you're called to teach. You're called to proclaim the gospel, preaching, but you're also called to take other believers and disciple them, teach them, grow them. That's what we're supposed to do. And so what you see here in the church is they're teaching as well as preaching. If you look at your bulletin, there's this great picture on the front that Nancy put on there that really just explains it so nicely. It has evangelism to the left, the cross in the middle for conversion, then to the right is discipleship. That is what we're supposed to be doing. Is before they're saved, my goal is to evangelize, is to proclaim Jesus Christ to them. They get saved, they're then converted into being a Christian. Then after they're a Christian, disciple. That's a healthy church. Evangelize the lost, see them converted in Christ, and then disciple to be a stronger believer. That's what we're called to do. You see that as a believer. Preaching, teaching, growing. That's what's supposed to be happening. Verse 27, And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of the name Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Here's our last point. But before we get to that, we need to talk about this idea of prophecy. Prophecy means two things in the Bible. Prophecy either means speaking forth for the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. If you look at some of the Old Testament prophets, they spoke for the Lord. They were prophets. Prophecy also means foretelling of future events. You have your Agabus that was foretelling of a famine that was coming. Prophecy is still around today. It's a gift of the Spirit. But here's the problem that I've run into. It seems like that everybody and their brother today is a prophet. Boy, everybody's a prophet nowadays. Well, how do you know if they're really a prophet of the Lord? Well, first off, if they're going to foretell a future event, you want to know how to know if they're a prophet? The event came true or not? How simple is that? How do we know Agabus was a prophet? Well, he said there was going to be a famine. There was a famine. Well, sounds like a pretty good fulfilled prophecy. You remember it was a couple years ago, wasn't it? Was it two or three years ago where the guy said that Jesus was returning in May? You remember that? Okay, now, was he a prophet? Obviously not. It didn't happen. Now, when that first popped up, there was this whole... Well, is it real? Is it not real? No one knows the day or the hour, the Bible says. So let's just ignore that. But what happens if it happens? Well, then we go to heaven. It's kind of a win-win, you know? I remember a few years ago, someone came up to me and said, oh, I just read this where they prophesied that they're going to announce the rebuilding of the temple, and it was some date in April. What do you think? My response was, well, let's wait to that date in April and see if they announce the rebuilding of the temple. See, that's the thing about prophecy. If you come and say, thus saith the Lord, this is going to happen... Well, then I'll mark it on my calendar. And if it happens, hey, fulfilled. If it didn't happen, I'm going to start second-guessing a little bit of stuff you say. In fact, Old Testament law said if you were a prophet and it didn't come true, the result was supposed to be stoned to death. That really weeded out (laughs) false prophets. We live in grace and mercy today. Amen to that. But we don't really have a weeding out procedure today. And some of these prophets that you hear today, it's so generic. God is going to do something mighty in your life this week. I mean, does that mean I get ten nuggets instead of nine? I mean, that's kind of a cool thing, you know? What does that mean? What's mighty? 
It's, it's very generic. So prophecy is, is usually specific, Christ-centered, glory-to-God type of stuff. You see here this working in the early church. It can still happen today, Agabus. But this is the final point here about a, a Christian. The disciples, verse 29, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Look at our points of being a Christian. You'll be persecuted, go through difficult times, fiery trials. Don't think it's strange. Be a preacher. Encourage. Seek out those that are struggling. Teach. And the last one, a healthy Christian is also a giver. It's also a giver. Can you go with me to 1 Corinthians 16? When there was a need in the early church, we just got two verses and we're done here. When there was a need in the early church, they gave. They were struggling. And so they said that each disciple, each according to his ability, determined to send relief. So let's send them some help. 1 Corinthians 16. One attribute of being a Christian is being a giver. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside something, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. Basically... Paul is saying, hey, this is how we're going to do it. The first day of the week, which is Sunday, you guys are going to collect up the money that needs to be used to help the church here. And he goes, I want you to do it when I'm not there, so that way there's no collections when I come. He didn't want to be, oh, Paul's here. Pass the plate. Paul's here. No. Plan this ahead. This phrase right there, lay aside something. Lay aside that, that phrase, and it doesn't translate to this word, but it means to determine, to set a point. We would use the term Budget it. Plan ahead. Budget it. And I can give you testimony after testimony of Dawn and mine's life of the Lord's blessing of just making sure that we give to Him. It is budgeted into our life. It's not even a question. When we get paid, boom, 10% right off the top just goes right to God. It's just that budgeted plan. It is planned aside. Because what happens is if you don't, you know, it's the classic, and we've used this joke out here before. You, you come to church, they pass the plate, you feel guilty. I should probably throw something in the plate. You open up your wallet, the only thing you see is a 20. You don't want to give a 20, I and mean, that's a lot. I mean, don't you got a five? Or, or, or even better, a few ones, wrap it up. You know what I mean? So it looks better. No, lay aside something. It is planned, it is determined, it is purposed, because this is part of my attribute as a Christian is as a Christian, I'm a giving Christian to the Lord. Now, let's build on this last verse we're going to go to here today. 2 Corinthians 9, please, and then we're going to let you go. 2 Corinthians 9. Why do I need to give to the Lord? God's not bankrupt. He doesn't need the money. So why do I do it then? 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Part of the reason I give is to be honest, I'm also blessed in return. Now be careful with this. Be careful. Don't turn this into, boy, I got a big day at work on Tuesday. Look at me, Lord, I'm throwing an extra 20 in. That's got to count for something. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is, if your heart is bountiful towards the Lord, the Lord will make sure he's bountiful back to you. If your intentions are, I'm going to write a big check and I'm just going to sit all week and wait for that money to come pouring in, you're misunderstanding the system. God is not an investment banker. I 
did this, and so I expect this return. No, Lord, you have been so bountiful to me. You have blessed me so much. I want to bless back. And to be quite honest, the thing we hold on to closest in this world is this silly idea of money. So therefore, when I'm willing to let go of that to the Lord, God says, I see your heart. Look at verse 7. Let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. If it's something that is begrudgingly or you feel like you have to, you're missing the point. God wants you to be cheerful. Now, I've heard people say then, well, if it's begrudgingly or necessity and my heart's not right, then I'm just not going to do anything. No, get your heart right. Why is it that you're willing to hold on to Money, when really the Lord has given you so much. Because look at verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That you always, having all sufficiency and all things, may have an abundance for every good work. God is saying, I will make sure all your needs are met. I will always make sure all your needs are met. So Dawn and I have decided, you know, we, we tithe. And the whole idea of tithing comes up, and it's kind of a silly argument. People say, well, tithing predates the law. Look at Abraham and Melchizedek. Nope, tithing was a law concept. You know, for Dawn and I, tithing is a great baseline. That's what we use. And if the Lord leads to give an offering past that, we go ahead and do that. But verse 8, he will meet your needs. Now, this is the difficult part, and I know we're running late, but just bear with me here. People come into my office, and they want to do financial counseling. So they come in, and they sit down, and they stop, and they say, I'm having a problem with this bill, I'm having a problem with this bill, etc. My background's finance, they they know this. Can we work a budget together? So we do. And one of the first questions I ask them is, are you tithing? Boy, doesn't that sound like the selfish schmuck of a pastor? You come into my office, you admit you're struggling with money, finances are tight, and my first question to you is, are you still giving to the church? That's not what I'm asking. What I'm saying is, are you still trusting the Lord in this time of difficulty? There's a wonderful passage in the book of Haggai that says your bag has holes in it. So you fill your bag up and as you're walking to your destination, you get to your destination and you look in your bag and your bag is empty. The context is the context of finances. You sit down and you look at your paycheck and you say, where does it go? Your bag has a hole in it. That's why the Lord has to be number one. The idea of giving is not the church wants your money. It's not that we're gre- No, it's a heart issue where you say, Lord, this is a way I can give back. I can't go to Africa and Asia and be the pastor and handler, but I can support ministries in Africa, ministries in Asia. That money goes to spread the gospel throughout the whole world. Look right here at verse 12. What does the money do? For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints but it's also abounding through many thanksgiving to God. Giving says to the Lord, I use it to see the gospel spread, but also it's a way to say to the Lord, thank you. I trust you so much that I know by giving this right here from the beginning, you're still going to meet my needs. Even though it doesn't make sense on paper. Do you realize how silly of a concept this is? I'm going to go ahead and just give 10% right off the top to God. What? That, that doesn't make any sense. That's why it's an idea of faith of trusting that that's what the Lord does. And I just highly encourage you. It's part of a healthy attribute of a Christian's life is because you trust the Lord in every area of your life, even in the area of finances. And you see that being set back in the early church. Now, we got to cut it off here. Marv, why don't you come ahead for the final song? It's, it's late. It's a little after 1130. Appreciate your willingness to stay a little bit late.